You can be seated if you've got your Bibles with you. You can open them um, or click in your phones and go over and get into Mark chapter 4. We'll be in verses 26 through 34 tonight as we continue our uh, year-long study through Mark's gospel. Last week, um, Mark 4 opens with um, four parables of word. And so last week we looked at those first two parables and then this week we're going to look at uh, the next two parables of the word, and then starting tomorrow, uh, not tomorrow, because we're not meeting tomorrow for church, but next week we'll look at the four parables of deed that Jesus does as well. And so uh, just as a brief recap, if you weren't here or you have uh, maybe forgot or hadn't had a chance to listen online, um, there are two things that are vitally important to remember about the parables. One, and if you go back and you read from Mark 4, 1 through uh, Mark 4.34, you'll see over and over and over again that Jesus stresses the importance of hearing. And we talked last week about how that hearing is, there are two ways you can hear. One is a, an in one ear, out the other. You just kind of are aware that someone's talking and you don't really hear what they're saying. Even though you may hear, you don't hear. And the other way that you can hear a teaching is to hear it in your ears, but then also hear it in your heart. And when you hear with your ears and then it travels and you hear the message of Jesus resonate in your heart, it begins to compel you to live a certain way. And that's always the mark of a true disciple is how does a disciple hear and then live? And the second thing to remember before we dive into tonight's text, um, last week we we just kind of briefly walked through the 10 or 11 marks of the parables. And remember, In Jesus' parables, we, meaning men and women, are not the focal point of Jesus' parables. Jesus' parables are always centered around or focused on a better understanding of the kingdom of God. And so as we unpack this more tonight, you'll see the importance of that. But we're going to be in Mark 4, verses 26 through 34. Wendell Berry writes in his book, Bringing It to the Table on Farming and Food, and says the following. Industrial agriculture, built according to the single standard of productivity, has dealt with nature, including human nature, in the manner of a monologist or an orator. It has not asked for anything or waited to hear any response. It has told nature what it wanted and in various clever ways has taken what it wanted. And since it proposed no limit on its wants, exhaustion has been its inevitable and foreseeable result. This clearly is a dictatorial or totalitarian form of behavior, and it is as totalitarian in its use of people as it is in its use of nature. Its connections to the world and to humans and the other creatures become more and more abstract as its economy, its authority, and its power become more and more centralized. Now, Wendell Berry is writing about this What's happened is we've become more disconnected from the land as industrial agriculture has taken over. But I also think you could take out industrialized agriculture and substitute in the industrialized church. And a lot of Barry's critique of industrial farming would hold true for the church. Because in much the same way, we come to God as it regards his kingdom. And we have begun to think that we can inform him that we will be the ones to determine when and how the kingdom grows. We rarely, if ever, ask him for anything concerning how to see the kingdom grow and expand. We display no patience in waiting for him to answer our prayers, and we have told him what we want and taken what we wanted when he has been too slow or seemingly uncooperative with our requests. 
we believe at a certain level that we've hacked the secret of the kingdom of God with our pragmatism. We've run ourselves into the ground in utter exhaustion trying to prop up what we ultimately cannot control or contain. In the process, we as the church have become those who both abuse the world we were meant to steward and also abuse the people we were meant to serve, no longer seeing value in either. We've become cold-hearted and calloused towards people who seem to us to impede our progress to ever-ascending degrees of glory. We no longer see the people beside us as fellow image bearers whom God has given us the command to love as ourselves. Into this chaotic confusion comes the parable of the seed growing and the parable of the mustard seed, two teachings of Jesus that I pray by God's grace will realign us with what life in the kingdom looks like. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word because it can do what no other writing in all of history can do. It can expose and convict of sin. It can bring healing and grace and forgiveness as we understand more clearly both who we are and who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And we also begin to understand what it looks like to live as faithful disciples and sons and daughters of you, our Father. And so tonight, would we wrestle with the implications of these parables, not only for what it means for the kingdom at large, but what it means for our own personal life. By the grace and the power of the Spirit at work in us, would we leave changed. In Christ's name, amen. Jesus is going to continue to teach on the kingdom of God through parables in our text today. After sharing about the lamp and its correct use in verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 21 through 25, Jesus comes back to the image of a farmer scattering seed. However, this isn't a continuation of or a shorthand retelling of the parable of the sower that he told in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Rather, Jesus is making a new point about the kingdom of God and what it means for the disciples then and us now, Jesus says the kingdom of God is as, af, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The important thing to remember is that this is a teaching about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus isn't trying to make the point that the man scattering seed is incompetent. You can read this and you can be like, oh, well, the guy, he's just so dumb. He doesn't know. Like if he was alive now, he would know all of this. Jesus knew and his audience would have known and if you're here and you've ever either helped on your family's smaller farm, maybe you've worked on a large scale farm or you've just tried to keep a few tomato plants and green beans alive through the summer months, any form or, or a flower bed for that matter, any, any form of gardening that you commit to is a commitment to sometimes backbreaking hard work and labor because you want to do everything that you can to give the seed and the flowers and the things that you've planted you want to do everything you can to give them their best opportunity to grow so you weed the beds you put down topsoil you'll put down potting soil you'll spread fertilizer you'll water you'll care for and make sure they get just the right amount of sun if you can and we want to see these things grow but at the end of the day there is nothing we can actually do that causes a seed to grow the seed inherently possesses the power to grow in and of itself. And it is here that we find the first point of the parable, namely the kingdom of God contains the power to grow within itself. 
So there's going to be a, a lot of tension in these parables tonight because on the one hand, Jesus is going to instruct us about how the kingdom exists and functions completely separate from human intervention. But there's also the reality that we are responsible for how we live in light of the truths of the kingdom. And so I'm not trying to tell you two different things and leave you wrestling with, well, which do I do? Do I trust that God's going to build his kingdom or do I work? Notice Jesus says the man scatters the seed. The man cares for the seed that he's planted, but it is the seed itself that contains the ability to grow. And so it is for us as disciples and followers of Jesus as we unpack these parables tonight. We are called to be faithful in living out what life as a disciple in the kingdom of God is. But it will only ever always be Jesus who provides the growth. James Edwards says it this way in his commentary on this section of Mark. The coming of the kingdom of God is likened to a process of growth, but a process strangely independent of human activity. Despite inauspicious beginnings and the absence of human involvement, the seed contains within itself fruit-bearing potential. The seed, like the gospel, prospers of itself and once sown, sets in motion a process that leads to harvest. And so the seed that we plant, not the proverbial gospel seed, but a seed that you plant in a garden has fruit-bearing potential inside of it. But how that fruit-bearing potential gets released is still a mystery to us. Because you can plant, you can care for, you can provide optimal growing conditions. And there can still be times when the seed doesn't grow. And there are times where we can try to pragmatize or provide the perfect opportunity for people to hear and respond to the gospel, and the seed doesn't grow. But we don't lose heart because the seed has within itself the power to create fruit-bearing it has that fruit-bearing potential. So it is with the gospel. We stand back and we marvel at the fact that God's kingdom is likened to a process of growth, but it is a process that is strangely independent of our activity. God's will and God's purposes throughout history will always be accomplished the way that he has determined for them to be accomplished, and man need play no part in that. God will do what God has set out to do and he will grow his kingdom and he is always growing his kingdom not because of the goodness of man but because of his own goodness and grace and mercy moving out from himself and he chooses to use men and women like you and me to grow and advance the kingdom but the power of the kingdom always resides within the kingdom itself because it's caught up in the character and the nature and the personhood of God. So why does Jesus come back to such similar imagery as he opened chapter 4 with? He is all-knowing, so it's not like he ran out of source material. Like he could have just done something different, like, hey, tell a different story this time. Somebody may have heckled him from the crowd. But I believe the reason Jesus comes back to this imagery is because we are always prone to either misunderstand or misjudge the work of God in the world. I believe this is for two reasons primarily. One, because it doesn't match our expectation of what we think the growth of the kingdom should be. Or, on the other hand, the growth of the kingdom from our perspective looks haphazard. And so I think Jesus comes back to remind us, no, 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 no. 
Nothing about this is haphazard, and nothing about this is going to fail to meet your expectations in the future. And Jesus even addresses it when he says this in 428 and 29, the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, but when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Notice the progression that Jesus lays out for us in the life of the seed that you plant in the ground. There is order to the growth of the seed, and so there is order to the growth of the kingdom. The work of Jesus in the advance of the gospel has all been carefully planned from eternity past and is being executed with sovereign surety today. After all, if something is small and insignificant in the grand scheme of things, as a seed, like a green bean seed, is designed to grow with order and purpose, how much more has God planned and designed the kingdom to grow with order and purpose until Christ returns to complete the harvest at his second coming? There's a progression, there's a there's a way that God has designed even the garden seeds that we plant to grow with order and with process and with intentionality. And in much the same way, the gospel grows with the same process and order and intentionality. But for a lot of us and for a lot of gardening, a lot of that initial growth happens completely out of our sight. Where we are completely unaware and it feels as if nothing is happening. And I know that there are these videos that exist where they've put cameras down in the ground and you can see where a seed's been planted and you can watch the roots all of a sudden, they just shoot out of that seed. And all of a sudden it begins to work its way up towards breaking through the soil. But there's still mystery involved in what causes the seed to break open in the first place. And so it is that while we know and understand how to read our Bibles, how to evangelize, how to share the gospel, there is always mystery involved on when and how the gospel takes root in someone's life. And we are not to allow that mystery to cause us to become cynical or doubtful. We are, allowed, we are to allow the mystery of the growth of the kingdom to stir in our hearts affection and worship for the God who designed the kingdom to grow in such a way. And the mystery of it all is that you and I became hearts that were receptive to the seed of the gospel, and it took root in our life. The first and most, the, the ground zero for the miracle of the gospel in each of our lives should be our own life. The fact that your heart in its natural state was so in inhospitable to what would cultivate a love and a desire for Jesus and to know that through the preaching and through the ministry of the gospel the Lord used it to change your heart to become a place that would be receptive to the word and to the gospel so that you would become a believer is a mystery that none of us can fully explain it's a mystery that none of us can fully understand but it is meant to cause in us deep love and worship for our Savior. The NIV Study Bible says it this way, The growth of the kingdom can neither be forced nor coerced. Although it is not known how, the word contains its own generative power, causing the kingdom to grow steadily and surely in God's time and in God's way. And I would add, for his 
glory. Anybody in here in elementary school ever do the grow a green bean in a solo cup experiment? You know, like on Monday you like rinse with fluoride and on Friday that same little solo cup shows back up and you're like packing the pot and soil down in there and you like press the green bean down with your thumb and you water it a little bit and you leave over the weekend. You come back on Monday, nothing. You water it a little more. You watch it. Your teacher's trying to explain everything. It's like this growing anticipation and then you come in one day and like half the classes, green beans are up, and everybody's like, oh, that's great, but mine's not. And then you come in the next day, and it's like, everybody's green bean is growing, and everybody gets real excited. You're like, man, this is great that 20 kindergartners got a green bean to grow in a solo cup, right? And your teachers could explain to you at a certain point what was happening, but they couldn't explain everything about what was happening to you. There was that certain point where mystery entered in. In the same way, there's mystery involved in how the kingdom of God arrived in Jesus' day and how it continues to advance in our own day. James Edwards says, The parable of the growing seed warns against wedding the coming of the kingdom to forecast, projections, timetables, and strategies. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus sunders all attempts to capture him in categories, formulas, and agendas. So it is with the kingdom of God. To anchor it to human dreams is to lose it. For God has ordained what no ear has perceived and no eye has seen. And so Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a seed that's planted. And it slowly begins to grow. And a lot of the initial growth, what ensures the longevity and the future fruit bearing of the seed that's planted happens completely out of sight of the garden of the farmer. But then all of a sudden, when it has done its work to establish its root system so that it can be helpful, first the blade, and then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear, and then the grain ripens, and then it's harvested. Jesus says, this is what it is to be my disciple. This is what it is to be involved in my kingdom. It's to always be waiting for the first sign of life to break through and then trusting that if life breaks through in the heart of a person, that they will see the fullness and the maturity of the gospel in their life and they will be there at the end of time to enjoy being welcomed into my kingdom forever. But it's a mystery to us. And so often we just don't want there to be any mystery about God and his ways in our life and in the lives of our churches and our ministries. We want the cold, hard facts. We want to know exactly what to do and how to do it in a way that guarantees growth over and over and over and over and over again. And Jesus says that's not what life in the kingdom is like. Life in the kingdom is like planting a seed in the ground and watering it, and sleeping, and rising, and sleeping, and rising, and in a way that you don't understand, and that you can't fully explain, the gospel takes root, and life begins to happen. Then he goes on in verses 30 and 32, and he tells the parable of the mustard seed, the last of the four parables of the word, and Jesus says this, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes much larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. I don't know about you, but until I was actually getting ready to preach this sermon, 
I just thought there was a little bit of a lost in translation thing going on, and they really meant like mustard greens. And I was like, now, I've been to the North Carolina State Fair a couple of times. I've been to quite a few county fairs. I have never seen mustard grow into a tree. I was like, so maybe there's just like this misunderstanding, like what in the world is this? Turns out there is a such thing as a mustard tree. I had no idea. It will grow to be between 8 and 12 feet tall. Not the biggest tree you've ever seen. It doesn't come near the cedars of the Pacific Northwest. The modest tree by height. It's also very noxious. I mean, it smells like mustard, which isn't the most pleasant smell in the world. And it's also invasive. So if you're Jesus and you're going to teach about the kingdom, maybe pick something better. Like, don't use, like, the advertisement for the kingdom shouldn't be something that smells like a boy's dorm after a week of summer camp and Axe body spray. Like, pick something better, we would say. But Jesus uses this mustard seed analogy because he's after something much deeper than just a grand picture of what the kingdom of God could be like. Jesus had at his disposal the imagery of the mighty cedar taken from the Old Testament prophecies about the restoration of Israel that he could have used to stoke interest and excitement over his work. If Jesus were to say the coming of the kingdom of God is like a mighty cedar of Lebanon, he would have had people flocking to him to sign up to be about the work that he was doing because there were numerous Old Testament prophecies about a cedar being planted and taking root and growing up and becoming this grand majestic tree on top of Mount Zion that all of the birds of the air would flock to. It's found in Ezekiel 17, through 24. But Jesus isn't after any type of flash-in-the-pan emotionalism. What he's after is an increasing awareness of the subtle, obscure, and insignificant beginnings of the kingdom. As the NIV Study Bible notes, at the same time enlightening the kingdom to the smallest of all garden plants instead of the expected great cedar, Jesus begins to implicitly challenge Israel's traditional messianic expectations. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that is planted and grows and it becomes the largest of all the garden plants and birds from all over will come and nest in its branches. Jesus just flips the cedar prophecy on its head because the prophecy in Ezekiel twenty two twenty four that God gave to Ezekiel was, I will cut the top off of a cedar, I will plant it, it will grow up into a great tree and birds from all around will come and nest in its shade. And Jesus says, that is still going to happen, but let's replace the cedar with a mustard tree. This is what Isaiah said later in Isaiah, or what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 when he's talking about the suffering servant. He says there's nothing in him that would naturally draw us to him. There was nothing about the appearance of Jesus that, was stand out in, that would stand out in and of itself. He had no appealing beauty that was a magnet that would draw people in. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians, I believe, that to those who are alive, the aroma of Christ is life. And to those who are dying, the aroma of Christ is the stench of death. This is how the gospel plays out. It is obscure 
It doesn't seem to fit the expectations of not only the Israelites then or the Jewish people then. It also often doesn't fit our expectations of what we think kingdom growth would look like now. We don't want to be associated with something as unappealing and as smelly and as disinteresting as a mustard tree. I didn't even know they existed for heaven's sake. Maybe you didn't either. And Jesus says, no, this is what it's going to be because I could use the cedar analogy and draw a crowd. But it wouldn't be a crowd that cared about me or my ministry. They would just want to be close to the action and to the power that they thought would be at their disposal. But notice, even though the tree is different and Jesus swaps out the cedar for the mustard tree, the end result is the same. The tree grows and the birds come to nest in the branches, which was Old Testament imagery that foreshadowed the inclusion of the Gentiles, which means us in the people of God. And so when Jesus says this is what the kingdom of God is like, it's like a mustard seed, though it's small, when it's planted, it will grow up to dwarf all other garden plants, and the birds of the air will come to nest in its shade. Jesus confronts not only their expectation about what the coming of the kingdom will be like, he also confronts the expectation of who will be in the kingdom. Because it's not just the people in Israel who will be in the kingdom there will be birds come from far away places to nest in the branches of the tree there are people from every tribe and nation and tongue who will make up the redeemed people of God for eternity Jesus is pushing the envelope of challenging the people's understanding and expectation of what would constitute the kingdom of God and who would constitute the kingdom of God Not only that, but as Jesus uses the mustard tree seed imagery, he's also announcing the subversive nature of the kingdom. Because remember, not only was the mustard tree noxious and unimpressive from a height perspective, but it was also invasive. Wherever the tree took root, it also took over. If Jesus were in bodily form, on, I about said alive today, but he is alive today, duh. If Jesus were here today and he were ministering in the south, this may be called the, the kudzu parable. Because kudzu takes over. Like wherever kudzu takes root, kudzu takes over. And the more you try to weed it out, it seems like the stronger and more resilient it gets. And it was the same way with the mustard tree in Jesus' day. It took root and then it began to take over. And the more you tried to take it out, the stronger and more resilient it became. And that's the nature of the kingdom. Where Jesus using the parable of the mustard seed to point to the reality that the kingdom of God does not coexist alongside earthly kingdoms and power structures, but where it takes root, it works to slowly but surely overtake and overthrow the grand empires of history, which can appear to have the upper hand at any moment in time. The kingdom of God does not share space with any other earthly kingdom. The kingdom of God is always confronting and always overthrowing any earthly kingdom or power structure it encounters. 
And so the kingdom of God is invasive. It doesn't just sit over somewhere by itself contained in a nice little terracotta pot where you can contain it. It exists and it moves in a way to overtake everything in its path. And there have been numerous countries and numerous empires throughout the history of man who have proclaimed the kingdom of God dead. And the kingdom of God has never once died and Jesus has been the pallbearer of every great empire the world has ever known. And he will be the pallbearer of every great empire that ever exists because at one point in history in the future, Jesus will return and everything will be put under his rule. And he will walk every other empire and kingdom straight into the grave because his is the only kingdom that will last. And so on one level, this mustard tree analogy works to confront social and political power structures. But on another level, the imagery of the mustard seed being an invasive species that works to overtake everything in its way, Jesus uses this as a thinly veiled warning to the religious leaders of Judaism. The kingdom of God will overthrow governments, yes, but it will also upend the religious operations of the day. The status quo of the Pharisees and scribes has officially been put on notice. Ben Witherington captures the thrust of Jesus' words when he says, The dominion that Jesus was proclaiming, which called home various unwanted birds to live, was a threat to the existing garden or field of early Judaism. If Jesus' proclamation took root, it stood in danger of subverting existing kingdom visions and power structures in Israel. Though the dominion appeared small like a seed during Jesus' ministry, it would inexorably grow into something large and firmly rooted, which some would find shelter in and others would find obnoxious and try to root out. So on the highest level, the kingdom of God, this mustard tree that grows up, challenges and will overthrow every social and political empire and institution as the kingdom of God continues its slow, steady, but sure march through the ages of history. But it will also upend all of our religious understanding of what life in the kingdom looks like. And it will overthrow and it will swallow up in its stead those institutions within the church and around the church that stand in opposition or stand slightly off center of what Jesus meant for his kingdom to be. Jesus is at the center of the kingdom. God controls the growth of the kingdom. God ensures the growth of the kingdom. And as try as we might to hold on to even religious power, the kingdom of God does not exist alongside of our attempts to hold on to religious power. It comes to subvert and overthrow even that. And then there's the personal level or application of the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of God is invasive in your own life. The kingdom of God does not come into your heart to then exist in one certain area that you pull out on Sundays and on small group nights or when you're meeting for discipleship. The kingdom of God is invasive in every area of our life. Kristen and I were in Las Vegas this past week 
for her to be at a medical conference. And we were walking around and just taking in the overwhelming sights and sounds of that city. And in a moment, walking and experiencing all of that, it's easy to feel like from a biblical perspective, from a believer's perspective, looking out at everything, that the gospel really isn't making that much of a difference. And it's easy to see how often we compromise in our own life the complete upending nature of the kingdom in our hearts and in our priorities and in our everyday comings and goings. But the kingdom of God is invasive in your life and in my life. And at some point, I would imagine you've had to wrestle with, I've had to wrestle with, the full overwhelming nature of the kingdom. We were out there, look, y'all, let me just give you a little hint. 107 degrees, I don't care if it's dry heat or not, is hot, like painfully hot. Like 85 here and 100% humidity is bad because it feels like you're like walking around in a damp sweater that didn't get dried well. But walking around in desert heat at 107, it's just hot. Like there's zero comfort in dry heat. That's a lie from the pit of hell. There's no, dry heat is hot the same way as humid heat is hot. And at the hotel we stayed at, they keep the pool water chilled to 70 degrees. Now, you want to talk about a rude awakening. But look, this, this is maybe one of the best word pictures I, I, I know for understanding the nature of the kingdom. There are, two, there, are, there are only ever two ways you get into a pool. The first way, you go a little bit at a time. Like you like, man, I'm not getting this above my ankles until, every, until my ankles, I can't feel my feet or they adjust. And then you go like mid-shin, and you're like, all right, I'm good for another five, ten minutes. You know, then you're like, all right, mid-thigh. Okay, maybe waist, and you're like up on your tiptoes like you've never walked taller in your life. Like, I don't want it to go any higher. And the whole time, the whole time you're, you're working in your mind this idea of is it really worth fully going in? Like, I'm comfortable up to here, but then it's the whole different mental game you play of, do I really want to go fully into this thing? The second way to get into a pool is just to jump in. To jump in. Let it overwhelm you. Let it completely cover you. Let it take your breath away a little bit. And then come up from underneath it, and you're refreshed. You're refreshed more when you jump in than if you slowly ease your way into it. And you can ease your way into it and never fully commit to being in the pool. And it's the same with the kingdom. The kingdom is not something that we wander into and we go, well, I just want a little bit up to my ankles until I can be sure that I really want to be in the kingdom. And then we go up like mid-chin and we're like, oh, man, this is really uncomfortable. And I look like an idiot standing here just shin deep. And like, I don't, you know, they're like, okay, well, all right, well, now it's comfortable again. So now I'm going to go up to my waist. Then we begin to feel the pressure of the kingdom, what it looks like to live as a disciple. And we start to go, oh, man, well, this is a little uncomfortable. Let me just ease on up on my tiptoes here. I don't want to get that committed. We can live 20, 30, 40 years waist deep in the kingdom and never fully commit. And Jesus doesn't offer that as an option. 
Jesus doesn't offer as an option wandering in up to your waist and only moving forward when it's comfortable. Jesus says it's all me or it's none of me. You either jump into this thing with your whole life or you have no part in my kingdom. The gospel is the mustard seed that grows into a tree and it will upend your life before it upends anyone else's. And so often while we struggle with sharing the gospel, while we struggle with living out the convictions of the gospel in our own life, is because we're playing around in the kiddie pool. Only willing to go to the point that we feel like we are comfortable and we are in control. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't get to control how much of your life you give me. It's going to cost you your life. Now come follow me. If we're honest, we feel so accomplished when we go from our knees to our waist. And we're still missing so much of what life in the kingdom looks like because we're just really scared of the full commitment of submersing our whole life in the gospel. Because to submit your whole life to the gospel means all of a sudden, by worldly standards, you become very unimpressive. I don't have a good way to make you sound good about being smelly, but whatever. You become really unimpressive. You become really different. And it starts to cost at a different level than just going to where we feel comfortable and then stopping there. Jesus spoke in parables often, and when alone with his disciples, he would explain the true meaning as they were able to hear and receive it from him. Again, everything hinges on the disciples' ability to hear. So as we hear the parable of the growing seed and the parable of the mustard seed, we are invited to hear and to remember that although the kingdom of God may appear to be battered and losing ground on every side due to political opposition, religious opposition, misunderstanding, or outright rejection, it is still advancing and accomplishing its God-intended purposes in the world. The parable of the growing seed and the parable of the mustard seed are meant to be parables that are, first of all, cautionary to us about how we approach life in the kingdom. But they are also meant to be parables of comfort that God is going to do what God set out to do from eternity past. And no human involvement or no human opposition will slow down or stop him from doing just that. James Edwards sums it all up in this way. He says, the advent of the kingdom is not something humanity brings about, but something God gives. Therefore, Jesus is not disheartened, distraught, or desperate, nor should there be any anxiety among his disciples. We'll read that again, because this, this, I feel like, gives us the full synopsis of what Jesus is teaching in these parables. The advent of the kingdom is not something humanity brings about but something God gives. Therefore, Jesus is not disheartened, distraught, or desperate, nor should there be any anxiety among his disciples. Jesus and his kingdom are going to advance, 
Jesus is going to give us the kingdom. And he is not sitting on the throne fretting over the current condition of things in our world. He is sitting on the throne, sovereignly working out all things towards their intended purpose. He's not missed a day in all of history in bringing about his will and his purposes. And he ain't taking a day off anytime soon. So as disciples, we can exhale and breathe and rest in the surety of God's promises to us. Both personally and as it regards the church at large. By God's grace and the power of the Spirit, let us live fruitful lives in light of these truths. Let's pray.